Hey, Rockheads. This is Music to Code by Track 12. Check this out. Yeah, just what you need to get in the zone when you write code. And get this, we just added a site license. Download it once, share it with everybody in your office. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1287, with guest Kim Carter. Recorded Wednesday, April 13th, 2016. And they're back. Richard Campbell, Carl Franklin here for .NET Rocks. How are you? We're doing the thing with the stuff. Like we always do. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, we, I, we're getting good at this stuff. Well, and here we are doing the little time-shifting thing again, so... Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, this is a great show for me because I get to talk to two New Zealanders, one in New Zealand and one in Canada. Uh, there you go. And I don't sound like I'm a Kiwi at all. No, but in fact, you are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Technically, I guess. Yeah, that you know, that and five bucks will get you a latte. I suppose. Yeah, might, might get you a, a two passports, but I don't know. Hey, it does uh, do that? So you, yeah. So you actually a Kiwi, Richard? I'm born in Tonga. Gee. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're uh, on our actually recording this before Dev Intersection, but uh, when it's going to come out in a while. It's going to come out after Dev Intersection. After Dev Intersection. So I'm sure we had a great time. We always have a great time in Orlando because it's Orlando. It's the happiest yeah. place on earth. Um, I have something interesting that was sent to me today for Better Know Framework. Nice. All right, dude. So a, a listener contributed BKF. Yep, that's right. And uh, thank you, Keith Bozek, for this. It's a little utility. It's called the Breakpoint Generator for Visual Studio. Oh, that's I, interesting. I had never heard of this before. But if you go to 1287.pwop.me, that brings you to this on the Visual Studio page. Uh, here's how it's described on the page. As developers, we're often confronted with existing, potentially large code bases that we've never seen before, but are asked to make changes in. It can be a class library received from a colleague or a complete application downloaded from GitHub to reuse or extend. However, before we can start making changes to the code, we need to understand the existing flow of the application. Where does it start? What are the public entry points to the different assemblies that are part of the application solution and so on? To do that, we'll often start by reading the code, guessing what functions will be called, setting several breakpoints, and start debugging. Are you 
See where this is going? Yep, I feel it. This works relatively well in small code bases, but in the case of a large application, this can be very time-consuming. This is where the breakpoint generator extension comes in. This Visual Studio extension automatically scans the source code in the active solution, finds the public methods, which are typically entry points into the program, and puts a breakpoint and a configurable trace message to the beginning of each method. You can do this for a single file, project, or a complete solution. How about that? That's really interesting. You know, and it just speaks to how intelligent the underlying libraries have gotten that they're starting to evaluate where to look. Although I still got to think the first time you use this, it sets too many breakpoints. Probably right. But yeah. better too many than too few, right? Yeah. It's, uh, a, it's a beginning. Yeah. You're going to be pressing F5 all night long, get yourself some coffee. But you're also going to walk through the app, you know, where it thinks the logical points for you to look at are going to be, which is cool. Right. But I do like the thing that they say is, uh, you know, you, it'll work on a file, just a single file. Yeah. Or a project or a solution. So that, mm-hmm. that way you can, you, you, you don't have to go crazy. You can yeah. just work on one file at a time. Um, so it, it basically downloaded. It's free and it's in the Visual Studio extension gallery and the link is on that page. And uh, then in your debug menu, you've got a generate breakpoints uh, menu item. And that's right. it. That's cool. The fact that that menu item exists is kind of amazing. Yep. So there you go. Breakpoint generator extension. Love it. Andrew B. Hall, by the way. Nice. Microsoft. And uh, five stars all the way around. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1244, the one we did with Stephen Hans when we were talking about cryptography. This is back in January 2016. He's an interesting uh, guy. That was a good We had a lot show. of good conversation there. Yeah. And it went in a lot of different directions, too. But this particular comment, I think, is you know relevant to all of us, too. Uh, this is from Blair Learn, who said, Hi there, I've been following various security conversations for a while and considering SSL for some of my personal projects. One of the things holding me back has been the price of certificates for personal projects because 60 to $100 per site can add up. And by the way, that's 60 to $100 a year because mm. you do have to renew them. From that standpoint, the Start SSL and Let's Encrypt links are both interesting finds. Those yes. are the free certificate places. Right. I'd be interested in hearing more from the security community about the idea of free SSL certificates. The price is certainly right for my needs, but I have to wonder whether this undermines the overall concept behind a security certificate. Historically, the idea behind a CA has been that they're certifying that the site owner is who they say they are. What you've been buying isn't just a key pair, but a certificate. Let's Encrypt, on the other hand, has taken the stance that it's not their job to investigate or to validate the safety of domains involved beyond checking against Google's Safe Browsing API. Mm. And he references a link from Let's Encrypt. Right. But when users do check the like icon and hopefully other cues, the assumption generally seems to be that someone has verified the identity of the organization behind the site. Yeah. From a pricing standpoint, a race to the bottom was perhaps inevitable. But this results in certificates that are only meaningful as self-signed certificates. Mm-hmm. Um. I have a couple of positions on this particular thing, having bought a bunch of certs. And one is that your typical $100 cert has no more checking against who you are than what Let's Encrypt does. Well, you know, you say that, but in order for me to get an account at, I think about my first ones from Network Solutions and then from Instant SSL, I had to have a Dun & Bradstreet number, which means that Dun & Bradstreet accounts, that is essentially a vetting 
process yes. you have to go through. How I, long ago was that, Carl? Yeah, it was a long, long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's these, all these rules have changed, right? Like they, they just don't do any of that now. Hmm. Now there is the extended validation certificate and, and extended validation certificates do include a bunch of that. So why, what's the, but what's the incentive to get one of those when uh, the cheaper one will work fine and people, all you really want is for people to use HT, uh, HTTPS on your site, right? Right. And that, and I think this is where you get to the and and the browser companies have worked hard to sort of distinguish the difference between an extended validation certificate and a regular certificate. But are the regular mortals looking at it? The lock symbols are different. Do they care? Right? I don't yeah, know. Do if they, they care? care? You know the uh, you know your extended validation certificates make your whole toolbar or the whole the, on your browser turn green. That's really the only distinction. Most people don't even look. And from that sense, it's like, yeah, go with the free ones because it's basically the same as the $100 ones you get from other folks anyway. Well, well the, yeah. And it, it doesn't mean that they don't provide security because you are still creating an end to end encryption with a third party key authority validating it. Right. And that's better than a self signed cert. Yeah, I guess so. We, we'll bring Kim in in a few minutes and see what his opinion is on that. But go ahead. So, Blair, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And now it's time to introduce our guest, Kim Carter. He's a senior technology architect and engineer, an information security professional, an entrepreneur, and the founder of BinaryMist.io and... OWASP New Zealand chapter leader for Christchurch New Zealand. He is a certified scrum master, facilitator, mentor, and motivator of cross-functional self-managing teams. With a solid 15 years of commercial industry experience, Kim enjoys teaching others how to apply information security to their agile processes, bringing the security focus up front where it's the cheapest to implement, also increasing profit and reducing costs. Kim is also an international trainer, speaker, and published author, focusing on software and network architecture, web development and engineering, and information security. He's also a regular blog poster at blog.binarymist.net. He loves designing and creating robust software and networks, breaking software and networks, and then fixing them and helping organizations increase productivity. How you doing there, Kim? Yeah, good, good. What did you think of the, uh, what do you think of that whole free certificate movement do you think it matters anymore uh personally i think free certificates are uh, the way they go um but yeah there's a few other things you need to sort of like well yeah the consumers uh, need to start looking at uh, when they're looking at obtaining certificates um and like um, some of the new advances in that or some of the advances that are just sort of starting to be implemented that have been uh discussed and sort of fleshed out and specced um, over the last few years, like um, like OCSP must staple and that sort of thing. Like if I don't know if you've been watching that over the last sort of two to three years, uh, there's been some movement in it, uh, but not quite enough yet. Um, so we haven't really nailed that down, but it sort of pays to um, to keep your eyes on what's actually happening there because there's quite an evolution into how. Um, certificate security is uh, moved along. But if you look at the incentive of the of the browser user, don't they just want to know that uh, they don't care if it's green or yellow or anything else? I mean, how do you get a uh, the public to care one way or the other? And and therefore the website builder doesn't really have any incentive to spend any money if they can get away with not right. 
Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a bit of a sad conundrum, really. Um, yeah, I mean the end user just doesn't know, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean that's yeah, I I see that as being my responsibility, and those that sort of understand more about these things to educate the people around us, mm. and basically, you know, not come at it and like pointing fingers at them and saying, oh, you know, you're doing it all wrong, but basically lead them to the solution. Do you personally, when you come to a website that has uh, a certificate that m- you you don't think has been validated, even though it might be a, a site that's you know popular, and uh, does that is that enough to keep you away from it? Um, so yeah, so so I look at a lot of things. Um, like I'm probably not your normal user, so like often when yeah. I'm browsing pages and that, I'll just be uh, proxying. Um, other requests and responses, and then every so often I'll look at the traffic and just see what's happening there. And I'm looking at certificates, um, sort of like a lot. Um, and yeah, just um, yeah. So uh, back to your question, it sort of depends what the site is and uh, whether I've been there before. Right. Uh, it, a lot of it comes down to you know whether or not I trust uh, the people behind the site. Right. If it's your bank, for yeah, example, and you you know you've been there a million times before, and their certificate has expired, or they've changed to something that isn't you know something that's um, free. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So if it's my bank, I would probably um I wouldn't actually go there. I'd actually send them a message. Um, yeah. Problem is with banks, they're leaving a lot of most uh, banks are leaving a lot of uh, good security headers out, and uh, I think his name's Francis Marrier, who did a talk, well, he's done a couple of talks at the OWASP uh, NZ Day, and he's um, discussed uh, the security headers quite a few times. And um, there's only uh, actually one bank out of New Zealand and Australia that are actually uh, sending the correct security headers over the wire, <laughs> which, is pretty, which is pretty sad, right? Is it, what is it, Joe's Bank? <laughs> Um, I believe it was A and Z. Wow! You know, yeah. as, a, as somebody who runs a, a developers conference, when we do anything wrong with our SSL, we hear about it big time. Yeah. But I think that's just our audience. Yep. <laughs> and I would point out, just poking around a bit here, that the binary missed blog site is using a Let's Encrypt certificate. Huh? Yeah, that's all being proxied. It's all been proxied through uh, Cloudflare. I think the regular binary miss site looks like it's going through Cloudflare, but the blog is not. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, the blog. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, – it's a terrible blog. It's um, it's on my list of uh, fixing up, actually, deprecating and redoing. Nothing wrong with it. It does talk about your holistic InfoSec uh, uh, books. Right. Which, I mean, that's an yeah, interesting yeah, it gets the topic concept. Yeah, it gets the content across. Uh, but yeah. not in a very pretty way, and yeah. Hey, you, look, you know what? Cobbler's children have no shoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've said on this show many times, Kim, that developers and security are usually diametrically opposed, historically anyway. I mean, those that, you know, are working for banks and are working for governments and things like that are obviously a bit more concerned about it. But, you know, for for standard business the way it goes, I see anyway, and I have seen all my life, is that security is an afterthought. It's it's something that we think about 
adding once we've got the code working because it's uh, security can be a real um, roadblock for for especially agile development. How do you uh, how do you start that conversation and uh, and get people to do security first? Yeah, so I, it, it's a really interesting one because so, I've got some other friends in the industry and um, most of them are in positions of uh, like uh, security overseers and uh, they're not actually uh, developers as such or they're not in development roles. And often what's perceived, like you say, is uh, the developers see the security experts as being, uh, you know, people that don't really have uh, great people skills and they'll come along and, Basically, just bash them over the head and say, you know, this is this is not the way you should be doing things, and that really is not the right approach to, you know, to get the best out of your team and to educate them. You've really got to get them on your side. So you've got to lead them to the answers. So pretty much the book, the book I've written, um, takes takes the reader through that whole process. And so chapter uh, one is it chapter one? Uh, so yeah, there's a couple of chapters at the start. Uh, there's a thirty thousand foot view and a ten thousand foot view. So what they do is they set up the, the sort of um, a viewpoint and I just show the reader that they need to step back from the coalface and from the engine room, right, and mm. take a holistic uh, look of security. Because um, you know, developers spend most of their life in the code. Yeah. And a lot of the time they're not actually thinking about things that are going on um, outside of even the code, like, you know, social engineering tactics, and even physical security. Mm-hmm. So the book discusses physical security. It's got a, a chapter devoted to that as well. And, you know, the whole idea is to get developers to step back and to think about their whole, you know, the whole world around them and all the security aspects. And then once I've sort of, like, you know, got a good idea of where the potential flaws are, uh, then I take them to the 10,000-foot view which starts to bring them uh, back down and get them to hone in on the specific areas that are the lowest hanging fruit on the tree. And then once I've sort of like worked out what those areas are, then the rest of the book's pretty much determined on going through and dealing with all those uh, specifics. And in each chapter, I sort of encourage the user to, uh, uh, to continue to step back every so often to make sure they're seeing the whole you know, the whole uh, landscape, and they're not just uh, digging into specifics that don't matter as much as others. Like um, I like there's a lot of um, security aspects that uh, that penetration testers will look at uh, that are not the lowest hanging fruit on the tree. Hmm. So what is the low-hanging fruit? Like where should we start on this stuff? Yeah, so it depends on on the organization and what they're developing, of course. Uh, but often it's 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 the likes of certificates. It's the likes of um, filtering and sanitizing user input on yeah, the front right. end and the back end. And you know it's 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 all about def- defense and depth. So you know if you've got enough layers there that you know you've thought about security through each of those layers all the way through to the back end, and you're also thinking about security in your people because people are a big one. People. Are one of the ones that are social engineers will go after because they're so easy to to play because humans have got you know we're so complex and yeah. we've got so many flaws but we've also got so many strengths mm. so the idea is 
to point out the flaws and to bolster up the strengths. Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already, check out Stackify Prefix, some next-level .NET profiling. Yowzer. Thanks, at Coder Cabana. We couldn't agree more, and neither could at ToePimp or at Joe Stead or at TechFellow. Developers are swarming all over this powerful new profiler for .NET web apps, and not just because it's free. It profiles key app methods, SQL, caching, logs, errors, and more in real time. Usage is through the roof, which is totally fine. Prefix will never bog down performance. Quote, I have no idea how I got along without Prefix. Awesome tool. You said it at Boss Mojo Man. Visit bit.ly slash get prefix now for a live demo and an instant download. All right. So, I mean, we didn't mention SSL off the bat and so forth. You're all good with this. Like, here's an easy place to start. Encrypt all the communications. Yep, for sure. That's just, that just seems like a safe bet to me. Does the cert itself matter? Like, where you get it from, what kind it is? Like, does any of that matter? Yeah, so I think it does. I, I think like, there's some of the attributes that go into uh, producing a certificate and you know, where it comes from. Um, so like the um, OCSP and the, and the uh, sort of like the predecessor uh, with the certificate uh, revocation list um, and a few other things that have sort of come through in the, in the history of certificates and we're still not sort of right there yet. And there's also the likes of HSTS and HSTS preload, uh, which is HTTP strict transport security. And the preload is is basically, it's a list that uh, you can register your domain on um, so that uh, your browser knows um, about your domain from the get-go. And still, right. it's, it's interesting because very few um, people or businesses are actually registering their domain with it. So it's like people just don't know about these things. Now, is this a, a responsibility of the certificate authority or you think the individual companies have to deal with this? Uh, well, the HSTS preload is is the businesses, is the purchaser. Uh, they need to basically register their domain and then the browser knows about their domain and that their domain should only be reached over TLS. And what does that give you again? Um, I'm, I'm just trying to get the big picture here. I'm at 30,000 feet still. Yeah, so what that gives you is it means that the bad guy that's standing in the middle that's proxying your traffic, he can't uh, downgrade your TLS because to be able to downgrade your TLS, you've got to be able to um, – uh, there's got to be a point where you can actually intercept uh, the traffic that is uh, before it switches to HTTPS. Okay. And if you tell the browser, if the browser ha um, has a list of sites that it must not uh, – fetch data from unless it's over TLS, uh, then that initial request will be over TLS as well. And you're saying TLS, you're really, this is just another name for SSL, transport layer security over a secure channel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Your SSL is pretty much all uh, uh, deprecated now. So HTTPS, yeah. if you're using a, a decent certificate, we'll, we'll be using TLS. Okay. Yeah, so... Um, so, Kim, if I'm understanding you... I have to, there are settings I have to set on my website to say I will only communicate via TLS, that nobody else can uh, no, communicate to me with something else. No, it's not on your website. It's, um, I can put it in the um, sh show notes. Can I, um, a link to 
the place where you actually go to to register your domain. Right. I think Google. I think Google maintains the list, uh, but the other browser vendors use the at list. your domain registrar. Um, well, it's a, a it's not really a registrar. It's just a list. Um, it's just a list of people that have decided to submit their domains to it that Google maintains. Okay, and where is this list? Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes. All right, so we'll link to that website uh, in the show notes. But what you're saying is, so this is an added level of opt-in security that you can go and say, my domain is in this list, and then uh, the the browsers like Chrome, IE, I guess all you're saying, all these browsers now implement this? Uh, yeah, they look at it as well. And if you're in the list, then they won't um, fetch data from your site unless it's over TLS. Ah, so it's really a sort of a, um, what am I trying to say here? It's really an assertion, isn't it? It's saying that there's no way that anything but uh, TLS or SSL data can go between this browser and this server. Yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. So that's one. That's a, that's a good one. And, you know, w- what I like about your book is that you have a lot of practical examples of not just threat modeling, but threats. Like you have um, a whole bunch of attacks that people can, that a developer can sort of read like a, uh, well, you know, like a novel almost. (laughs) It's like, oh, that's pretty clever. Uh, Yeah. What's one of the most prevalent attacks that we may not have heard of? I mean, on this site, we've talked about SQL injection attacks. We've talked about cross-site scripting. We've talked about, uh, you know, the the sort of the middleman attack, which is what you were just uh, uh, talking about. Maybe something that's uh, on the rise. Yeah. So I think uh, I think basically um, one that's on the rise is basically just social engineering companies using the phone. Hmm. So um, yeah. So uh, I think it's called vishing. Uh, essentially, it's just uh, getting information out of, uh, eliciting information out of the person on the other end and, and using Just that. making a call and saying, this is Microsoft. We've noticed that there's some problems with your security. Can you get on your computer and walk us through some things, right? That kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah, exactly that sort of thing. And often if you get enough trust uh, from the person on the other end, which comes down to uh, your own um, social engineering skills, uh, then you can get, you know, um, you can get a lot of different sort of details out of them, even passwords. Yeah, you know, I think rule number one is Microsoft isn't going to call you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's start there. Yeah, they've got better things to do. But you know, from a developer's perspective, where this gets interesting is you are writing a system that is, you know, for password recovery. Or for, you know, getting access to account. Think about all this. The, it's not us that are being social engineers so much as like Amazon service support guys, right? Where the guy's engineering that guy to give information about you. So if you're responsible for writing software like that, I got to think you've got to think really carefully about how social engineering can exploit that. How, I mean, it still gets back to this question of how much is this code and how much of this is policy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. One of the things I go through in my book is actually uh, providing a list of basically a policy list for end users that 
spend a lot of time on the phone that they um you know things like never um, hand out passwords you know no matter who it is and you know a bunch of different things uh, just not to do and to make sure you always obtain satisfactory ID from the caller uh, just so that the person uh, that's actually receiving the call knows that right. they're uh, um, you know they're not doing the wrong thing within the company according to company policy because a lot of you know, especially new employees will feel like they have to bend over backwards to um, you know for people higher up in the organization and that sort of thing and you know I mean over a phone call anyone can call and say that they are such and such and if it's a legit if it's a legitimate person you know like an and a legitimate uh, role within the organization, then the, the person that's taking the call is just going to trust them because, you know, they don't know their voice. Yeah. Well, and it, it, yeah. you're never going to know their voice. You've got to have those mechanisms to actually validate, is this who you say they are? You know, that sort of, I mean, exactly. actually, I think the credit card companies are probably better at this than most. Like, I like the fact that, when I go to talk to a credit card company, they not only validate several different points of information, but you never know what that information is going to be. It's kind of all over the map. Mm. And every time they ask me a new question, I almost get a grin on my face, right? It's like, good one. Who would know that except me? Mm. Yeah. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? It must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to call back Larry Ellison. He called yesterday Why? and left a message. He wants to give me free Oracle for life in exchange for my social security number. <laughs> Hang on a second. And your mother's maiden name. I'll be right back. <laughs> it's an 800 number. What could happen? Yeah, what could go wrong? <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a music to code by complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you haven't checked it out, Music to Code By is a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet, and groovy instrumentals scientifically designed to promote focus. They'll get you into a state of flow and keep you there. And see how .NET Rocks fans are being more productive with Music to Code By. Check it all out at musictocodeby.net. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Jesse Flint. Congratulations, Jesse. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Jesse Flint. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And we also like to ask our guest, Kim, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? <laughs> yeah, so, so I've been listening to um, a, a quite a few of your podcasts, and yeah, quite a few people um, discuss monitors, right? Yeah. The big-ass yeah. monitors. Yeah. Um, well, I've got um, a set of uh, not 4K so far, but the ones just down from them. Um, I'm looking at uh, 4Ks, I think, for my next set. Okay. Um, I've looked at 5Ks. I think 4Ks is sort of like in the sweet spot um, for cost. Mm -hmm. So I think 4Ks are definitely worth doing it. Um, I'm really looking for the 4Ks that are curved so that they can actually you know, up, wrap around you quite smoothly so that you don't have to struggle so much with the viewing angle. Right. And did you find one? 
Uh, well, yeah, there are quite a few there. Um, so I think um, the best ones are coming from the likes of Samsung. Um, so, yeah, I, I think probably uh, three or four months away and I'll probably start putting that together for a new uh, rig. Nice. What's one you have again, Richard? I ask you this every time. Uh, I've got the the curved LG 3440 by 1440 monitor, which is fun for Kerbal, but I don't know. I wouldn't develop on it. I just find that the curve is distracting for things that are really focused on straight lines. Yeah. So, I, yeah, well, it's, really it's funny. Interesting. It, the Senate, I mean, the really wide aspect, right? That 21.9 by aspect is really compelling from a from a sort of big picture view. When you're coming up, coming into a, a low orbit around Kerbin and the sun rises, it looks fantastic. Uh, and all that width just gives you more of the I'm in a movie kind of thing. It's, it's, one, it's, it's wide enough that I can actually open three browser windows side by side and see them clearly. Yeah. You know, that that's good yeah. too. But I don't know. When I fire, I have Studio on it because it's my only machine right now. I tore down the regular dev machine yeah. while we're upstairs waiting for the basement to be restored. So it has got Studio on it, but it bugs me when I, when I use it. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, well, that's good advice. 5120 by 1600 display here. That's two thirty-inch monitors together, and right. I've had it for years, and I and I love it. Yeah, the in the you know I like the idea of a five K. I might even go for a five K, but they don't make them big enough. They're only like twenty-seven, yeah. twenty-eight, twenty-nine inches. Like if I'm the 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 four K monitor I'm in love with right now is the one that Sahil Malik bought, which is that forty-inch Philips, because it's only a hundred and twenty DPI, which means you can use right. every pixel in it, right? right? When you've got a 27-inch 5K monitor, you're pushing 300 DPI. That's great for printing, but you'll end up scaling everything else. You might as well get a smaller, lower-resolution monitor. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So, so Kim, can we talk a little bit about, and we'll maybe get back to some of these attacks later, but can we get into how you can integrate uh, thinking about these threat models and all of this stuff into the Agile process to give developers the power to do the the security stuff themselves and does it work (laughs) yeah yeah so it does work um so what i'd like to sort of like look at first is one of the tools that i found to be really helpful uh so you've probably heard of uh, owasp's uh, zap uh, http intercepting proxy so yeah uh, Zap's actually got an API on it, so so I did a proof of concept on a purposely vulnerable web application uh, called NodeGo. It's an OWASP application, and what I did is uh, basically wrote a little bit of code to train um, to train Zap what to look for and what to basically target. So, okay. so what I used is I used um, Selenium, like uh, you normally do to drive uh, your web requests, just proxy Sorry. a few requests through the Zap API. Okay. And then just tell Zap, uh, the Zap API uh, to go wild on your website. So so that includes a login and that sort of thing. You can do pretty much everything um, proxying through the Zap API, and it's all programmatically um, coded up. And so, yeah, so once a Zap API, once the Zap API knows about your app and knows about a few routes, uh, then it can go searching for all the additional routes and 
basically launch all the all of its um, attacks on your website and all of those uh, because it's got a large a database of known vulnerabilities uh, within it. Yeah. So it uses those vulnerabilities against the website. And so basically you can write a pretty small amount of code um, and you get a huge amount of um, vulnerability reporting coming out the other end. It's things like that that are, you know, that really reduce the amount of time that you have to spend on security testing. Right. Yeah. So why leave it to the end, you know, when it is the most expensive time to fix, you know, when you, uh, when it's all live, right? So when your web, your web app's gone live and users potentially are even finding vulnerabilities, it's, it's, it's just far too late and costly to make the changes then. You know, we're far better off to make it right up front uh, when we're actually writing the code. So these Agreed. security regression tests, you know, th- uh, that's where they sit and they give us biggest bang for buck. That's just one of the uh, processes. But, yeah, one of the things that I stepped through in my book. There's mm-hmm. a whole lot of others. All right, so that's a good one. So what's the role of Selenium in this? Yeah, so um, Selenium just drives um, the user's interactions uh, automatically. So you just um, tell Selenium uh, to basically uh, to basically act as a user, and it just uh, navigates right. your way around the site. Yep. Yep. So you're making a recording of yourself of navigating around and is you're using Selenium to record how to navigate the site and then you give that to Zap? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so what happens is Selenium actually just well, yeah, yeah, that's right. So so Selenium acts on the requests. So uh, you might as well think of Selenium. Now we should say what Selenium is. We should say what Selenium is first. It's a uh, it's an automated browser testing thing. Basically, it automates your browser. Yeah, yeah. So Selenium is basically an automated end user. So you just uh, tell it what it's going to do, and it basically does the things that an end user would do. So it makes all those requests and interactions. Yep. And then you just you, – so basically all that traffic just proxies through the Zap API, which can be anywhere. You know, It can be in the cloud. It can be anywhere. So it's, it's, it's quite easy to set up now. And there's really no excuse not to be using it. And so what is Zap? I mean, if, if you're building the whole navigation path and stuff in Selenium, what is Zap doing? Yeah, so Zap's, what Zap does is it, is it just uh, captures uh, the traffic that Selenium uh, drives uh, to your website. Right. So it's just proxying. All it's doing is proxying. So with that traffic, what it does is it works out um, you know, where your so- our website is. It works out a few... Uh, works out a few requests and um, obviously you've got to uh, teach it things like how to log in and that sort of thing. So you've um, actually got to add some credentials to Zap. So Zap knows how to log into your website and basically act as a user once you switch um, Selenium off and then right. Zap just goes wild and then Zap takes over and does the rest of the testing. Well, well actually does the testing because Selenium doesn't do any security testing. All that's doing is exercising the routes so did just does it just run the same Selenium script over and over again, or is it doing other things? Yeah, so the same Selenium script will run like, uh, say, if you've got it set up as a nightly build, it'll run once just to just to teach Zap uh, what the requests uh, look like, and then Zap takes over and attacks the rest of your web app. So Zap um, knows how to right, but Zap actually does it writes its own. 
Zap's writing its own tests now, right? Like it's doing different pen test attacks. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so it's got a huge database of vu- of vulnerabilities and right. exploits. So it knows how to exploit the vulnerabilities. It builds up a picture in its database of what your web app looks like. Uh, so it spiders. It's got a lot of functionality, and so it'll spider your web app, and now it knows exactly what your web app looks like, what's accessible, and what isn't. And then right. just launches all of the known attacks against your website and then comes out with a huge report. And then you can take that report and compare it to yesterday's report or last week's report and mm. you can see what's happening in terms of regression. And how often does Zap get updated? Like, are they finding new exploits all the time and adding it to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the guy that's maintaining Zap, Simon, um, is, is, is very active and has been active for quite a few years, and he's pushing Zap really hard. So it's it's a sort of uh, product you really want to use. It's 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 not going away soon. It's got a lot of users, and it's 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 doing really well. Nice, yeah. Cool. And I just went on to GitHub and found the OWASP Zap project, and the core project was updated twenty eight minutes ago. Oh wow! <laughs> you yeah, know, when you're talking well. about it, you live, is a project alive or dead? It's like anything within the last month, I'd be happy with. Oh, the last <laughs> hour. Okay, this seems active. Yeah, it's very active. It's it's actually, um, I think it's OWASP's our most successful project at the moment, and has been for quite a while. I think. But this seems like something I should just be building into my testing procedures. Like, you know, and For so much sure. better if I'm already using Selenium to test functionality that, that, that I could take that Selenium script to give Zap cues on how the site works so that it could then go yeah. in and exploit everything. Yeah. Why wouldn't yeah, you run exactly this on it. every build? That's exactly it. There's so little work to it. Yeah, that's a win. That sounds like something that just needs to be in my kit. Like, I, we, this should just be part of my regular website test suite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so in so in my book, it just goes through um, how to set it up and the different configurations that you can do. Like, there's quite a few different ways you can uh, configure it and set it up. Yeah, so I've got a project on GitHub at the moment um, on binary mist. Uh, it's called NodeGoat. So it's a fork from the NodeGoat project. Okay. So a NodeGoat is a purposely vulnerable web application um, developed by one of the guys uh, in iWasp as well. And what I've done is uh, set up a proof of concept against NodeGoat because it's quite easily uh, configurable as to how many uh, security vulnerabilities it actually has. And so what it does is by uh, setting up this proof of concept to run against NodeGoat, um, I can tell uh, whether or not I'm getting false positives and that sort of thing because then I can actually uh, fix uh, the vulnerabilities in NodeGoat and then run uh, the same tests over it again, and then see that it's come out uh, passing green and that sort of thing. So this is for testing Node.js services? Uh, uh, my project is, my proof of concept was for testing uh, Node.js uh, web apps. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but you can run it against any web application. It's just an H- I mean, uh, Zap is just an HTTP intercepting proxy uh, with a whole lot of extra smarts that knows how to attack your web application. Right. So what is no and so is NodeGoat just zap tuned for Node.js? Uh, so NodeGoat doesn't know anything about Zap. All it is is a purposely vulnerable web application written in Node um, to teach people uh, what these actually to teach people what the OWASP top ten look like. 
Oh, and I see. So it, what it yeah. is, Node Goat is actually a project built in Node for you to test against to see vulnerabilities. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So, so, um, so it comes with um, some um, some documentation around training. So, right. I mean, it's yeah. So you work your way through this uh, purposely vulnerable web app, and and you try and find uh, flaws in its code. And when you find the flaws, uh, then you can inspect the code. And uh, there's comments in the code and that sort of thing uh, that provide fixes, and then you can implement the fixes, and then and then uh, basically you've uh, basically you've fixed the vulnerability, right? So, and I see it uses Heroku as well. So you, this is just a way for you to practice using Zap effectively. Yeah, yeah. So no goat um, can uh, can be running anywhere. You can run it local. You can run it in the sure. cloud or whatever. Yeah. So the attacks that you outline in your book, how many of them can you actually, I mean, the social engineering ones aside, because that's a phone call, but, yeah. but uh, how many of them can you try to implement to take your site down? Uh, do you mean on NodeGoat or on anything? On anything. Yeah. So, so I did a presentation at, um, at WDC NZ last year, and there was, uh, there was five uh, full-blown attacks in that. And I videoed those, and what I've got is I've got links to the videos, and I've got directions as to um, what's going on in the attacks and how you can actually carry out those attacks yourself. So they're all in the book and sort of like sprinkled through it. And there's um, quite a few others as well. Uh, the other ones don't come with videos, but they've got pretty clear directions as to how you can carry out the attack, and then and then how you can go about mitigating it, and mitigating the uh, yeah. flaws. Very cool. This is some great practical stuff here, man. Good job. Yeah. Yes. So, so I've actually had to split the book up. It was going to be a one complete volume, but it's it's taking too long to basically do because there's so much content in there. So I've yeah. split it up into three into three separate books, and the first ones uh, should be um, I should be. A, well, well, actually, it's available now because they're all on LeanPub, so yeah. you can purchase them at, at any time, and you just keep, uh, I continue to get updates until they're considered to be finished. But uh, the first, so what's the separation between the three books? Yeah, so uh, the first one is basically uh, the first part of the book. What it is is it's got the uh, thirty thousand foot view, the ten thousand foot view, the tooling setup, which takes the user through how to set up. Um, a penetration testing uh, distribution uh, with all the additional tools and configurations that they're going to need. And it's all sort of targeted at the developer uh, rather than at the uh, pure pen tester. But it's um, sort of coming, sort of got a little bit of both in there because I've done quite a bit of both. So I'm right. uh, pulling the pen tester side of uh, the side of things into uh, the development team. And then it goes to the processes and practices, which has got um, – there's quite a few exploits in there, and it's just sort of like teaching you what penetration testing actually is. So that's sort of like goes through uh, five steps. That goes through reconnaissance, vulnerability scanning, and discovery stage, and then mm-hmm. searching for vulnerabilities once you know that you've uh, once you've scanned for them, and then basically exploiting, and then uh, documenting and reporting the vulnerabilities. So so that's sort of targeted again at the developer. But it's given the developer the tools they need um, f- from the pen tester. 
And then yeah. that goes straight into the Agile development and practices section. So this is basically all geared towards the Agile uh, team, to, uh, specifically towards the Scrum team. And that's where, uh, uh, where the ZAP um, testing, a regression testing lives. And then in there we've got a whole lot of other things as well, like um, like establishing a security champion within the team and how to handcraft your penetration tests, uh, code reviews and uh, with a security uh, perspective. And then, yeah, techniques for asserting discipline in inherently undisciplined languages such as JavaScript uh, and other dynamic languages you because may- they are so undisciplined. You may have cracked the code here to get developers really excited about security and baking it into the process. I mean, I, I'm sensing yes, that that's been the response from your your talks and you know, based on your videos and your book, that uh, that you actually may have changed the culture. Do you think it's you, or do you think that it, it's the tools, or both, or I mean, toot your own horn here if yeah, you need to. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is a little bit of both because it's, I mean, I started out as a tester and I always had a um, real focus on quality and that's always been, uh, it's been a plus as a tester, but it's also in a way has been a downside as a developer because it has slowed me down a little bit Mm. because I think about so many things more than um, a lot of other developers think about. I'm always thinking about what can go wrong rather than will this just work? So I've got these, you know, I've got all this extra stuff buzzing around in my head. So this book has basically just extracted as much of that information and experience um, from the last 15 years, mm. um, along with yeah, all the tools and that that I have used, because I've done quite a bit of penetration testing yeah. um, myself as well. So I'm, I'm able to combine the two and, and I've um, set up quite a few successful scrum teams as well. So I know how to, you know, I know what a successful scrum team is and what a scrum team that's struggling looks like as well. Yeah, so it's it's, yeah. it's basically just uh, condensing all those all that experience into one book. Very cool, very cool. So, what's next in your inbox? What do you plan on working on uh, after we hang up here? Yeah, so so after this, I'll be um, heading off to off to work. I've got a contract at the moment, um, so I'll be heading off to work mm-hmm. uh, just to do a normal uh, day's development. Um, yeah, so. So yesterday I was working on, well, I've been working on a user story this week and last week, and I got to a point yesterday where I had uh, a task that was, uh, so what the user story was, was just um, uh, pulling in some JavaScript into an existing application, which makes a, re- which makes a request to a survey API. And, you know, uh, the JavaScript that we pull in from the external a party, uh, there's a whole lot of things going on there that there was no security on it. So, um, so I'm basically just going through and adding a whole lot of security headers and yeah, um, uh, some of the things that we discussed before around uh, TLS and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's sort of an ongoing thing. Uh, well, we're wrapping up here. I just on a on a Kiwi to Kiwi note, <laughs> you live in Christchurch. That's right. How is that city doing? That's right. Because, the, I mean, there's been all those major earthquakes, and it, like, liquefied half of downtown. 
the ground? Yeah. Like, w- what's the state of affairs from somebody who actually is there? Yeah, so <laughs> it's it's pretty rough. Um, I'm sort of in one of the um, worst hit parts of the city. That's um, a New Brighton, and I mean, there's a lot of people around uh, me around us that still um, don't have houses that are fixed up. So it's been almost six years now, and yeah. uh, that actually includes us and our houses um, is is beyond repair. And yeah, there's a lot of people in this area that are still still dealing with it. Mm. And I mean, it's it's affected people psych- it's affected people psychologically as well. It's 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 been pretty traumatic. Well, and so you know, the ground that your house was sitting on isn't ground anymore. You can't fix the house. Yeah. No, no, no. The funny thing is, is you've got these huge voids underneath us as well. So count. Uh, mm-hmm. So the houses are going to continue to sink for the, like the next 20 years. Well, take care of yourself and uh, be safe. Yeah. And again, thank you for all this great work. Uh, I, I, I can imagine that there's a lot of very interested developers out there who want to get their hands on the tools and on your book and on the, uh, the threats and the modeling and everything else. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just hope people can get a lot of use out of it. Eh? I mean, it's, it's been a labor of love. Um, there's, there hasn't been much money in it for me. I'm, I'm not really doing it for the money. I'm, I'm doing it because I really believe in hmm. uh, development teams getting better at doing security. I, you're also a musician. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I haven't had a lot of chance to play for quite a while. Um, but, yeah, I've, I've released a full-length CD and an EP. Uh, that was about 10 years ago. Um, well, let's, so, yeah, let's link to those as well, my friend. Uh, they're not actually online. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, so what happened is, what happened is, I finished my last recording and I was burnt out because I had a few members of the team of the band just sort of like bail, and I had to do the whole lot myself. Ah. Oh. So, uh, so I ended up doing most of the instruments myself, and um, and it <laughs> just burnt me out. <laughs> well, uh, well, I'll send you one of uh, one or two of mine, and we'll we'll do a swap. That sounds good. Yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome. All right, very cool, Kim. Thank you very much. This has been it's been great. Yep, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, man. Cheers. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a